Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello everyone and welcome to Local Zero, live in London at the Energy Rev Summit. <laughs> and uh, what a happy, smiling group of people we have in the room. And uh, the more astute among you may have noticed that we are missing a certain someone on stage. Yeah, I think um, Matt was busy getting his elbow patches re-sewn <laughs> on. But he, he sends his, his apologies and best wishes. So the session today is something that, if you've listened to the podcast, if you've been working in Energy Rev, as, as most of you have for the last while, you will know it's a, it's a very important, very critical topic to, to, to the energy system in general. We're going to be talking about the, the role of smarter, more local energy systems and approaches to delivering a fairer and more just transition to a net zero energy system. And it is, it's a very important topic. And uh, particularly so in today's energy climate, as we're seeing the prices of energy rise and, and continue to rise, and the, the cost of living crisis is a very real thing. And um, I think what this has done and what we've really noticed is how it's highlighted some of the inequalities inherent in our energy system today. They have been written larger than they ever have before. But there's an upshot to this. We're not just here to depress you at the end of a, at the end of a long Tuesday. Um, and that, that upshot is that we are genuinely at a, a formative moment in the history of, of energy in the UK and around the world as well, where just about everything is up for grabs because it has to be up for grabs for delivering that cleaner energy system. We can absolutely make the changes that need to be made to make that system fairer and work actively for citizens, communities, people and places as well. And local approaches, those smarter local approaches, are one way, and I would argue quite a, a unique way or uniquely placed to, to deliver that fairer energy system. At that local level, you can tailor those systems to local needs. You can leverage community organisations, local knowledge, local connections to better reach people who have been typically disadvantaged or excluded in the old dirty ways of, of fossil fuels, as we're seeing just now with the energy crisis. However, energy is not simply fairer by virtue of being local. 
who gets to participate, who gets to benefit from that energy system, who gets to shape the design, who owns it, who governs it. All of these different questions are ones that are absolutely critical to answer if we really do want to fully unlock the value that we know could be on offer if we make those right decisions for people and places across the country. And we are so lucky that we have a fabulous lineup of guests to explore this topic with us. But before we bring them on, this is just a quick reminder that if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the pod. Search Local Zero wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website, localzeropod.com. Follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod. And Matt has signed us up to Mastodon. I don't even know what that is. Hashtag Local Zero Pod. And if all of that befuddles you as it does me, just email us localzeropod at gmail.com. We are nothing if not consistent with our branding. <laughs> Before we get into today, what I realised that I did not tell everyone at the start is that we do want your questions to put to the panel. So please, at any point, pop your questions in there and we'll try and bring them up. So without further ado, I think we will bring our esteemed panel into the conversation. What I'd like you to do, starting with Karen here, uh, left to right as the audience sees it, is to introduce yourself, generally what it is that you do, and give us the one big thing, whether an opportunity or a barrier, that you see for, for local and more citizen and community-led approaches to realising uh, a fairer net zero transition. Karen. Thank you. Uh, I'm Karen Barris. I am the founder of Climate Insights. Uh, Climate Insights is a relatively new organisation and really focusing on some of the seemingly intractable problems we're facing in delivering net zero and really understanding how the constituent parts of the puzzle fit together. Obviously, energy is a huge part of that. Local is a huge part of that. Um, so I'm really excited to get into the, the nuts and bolts of that today with you. Um, to answer your question, I think this is a time of unprecedented momentum. Uh, I think there are a lot of opportunities that we have the chance to grasp uh, in terms of local energy. I think people have a better appreciation of the need for transformation than they've ever had before. Uh, I think that we've reached a point now with recent policy developments, uh, some of which have been brought about by this fantastic project and, and the PIFA project at large. And I think that we're starting to have more knowledge and experience that can be shared. So I think that we're in a, a vital time of dissemination and understanding uh, what's working well, what needs to change. But I do think that there still needs to be more of a recognition about the role that communities can play, about the role that, that local areas can play. Um, and in fixing and transforming our energy system, there's, there's a little bit more work to do there. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Donald Brown. I'm a research fellow at the University of Sussex. Uh, I work in areas around sort of energy policy, business areas, <coughs> finance, political economy. I also um, run a small, I hate the word boutique, but boutique <laughs> consultancy and architecture practice who uh, work on low carbon housing and increasingly kind of uh, small scale energy issues. Um, I also chair the board of the Retrofit Cooperative, CIC, Retrofit Works. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of my, my, my broad role. So I think, um, I, I didn't want to be too negative, but I do think there is a word of caution. And I think uh, Fraser was touching on it in his opening, his opening sort of preamble, that I think there is, there is, we do need to be mindful about who benefits from this change and actually who is going to capture the value, which is almost certainly coming forward in the intersection between smart energy systems, uh, demand-side flexibility, internet things, enabled devices, and how we ensure that those benefits actually reach the people who need them most, rather than being captured by 
big multinational corporations, which, to be honest, has been what the smart and digital transition thus far has tended to produce. So I think there's a word of caution, and we need to make sure that we design policies and governance systems that make sure that that value is spread to, uh, to everyone and those who need it most. Hi, I'm Joanne Wade. Um, I've got a number of roles. I'm Chief Strategic Advisor at the Association for Decentralised Energy. I'm an on-exec at the Energy Saving Trust, and I'm Chair of the Advisory Board for the UK Energy Research Centre. Um, I've probably spent the last 30 years working on energy use in buildings mainly, so I'm very much on the user side of things. And I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The last 12, 18 months have shown us just how much the energy system has failed to provide what energy users need. And collectively, as a bunch of professionals, you know, I include myself here, who've spent their working lives working in the energy sector, we should be quite ashamed of ourselves that we've actually failed to deliver what people need. So I think that is a real opportunity for doing things very differently. But I think to be truly transformational, energy smart places need to much better understand what is the best that they can deliver for energy consumers and how to do that. And also to recognise that it's not one size fits all. So, you know, an energy consumer is not an amorphous thing. Everybody needs different things. And as long as we've got that as the fundamental principle of what we're trying to do, then hopefully there will be an offer from a smart local energy system for every citizen in that area that is appropriate for them, affordable for them, and actually makes life better for them, because that's what we should be aiming for. So to me, that's the big opportunity. My name's uh, Saeed Ahmed. I'm like a uh, number of people here, I have uh, several hats on, but um, I'm uh, broadly here today in my role as Chair of Community Energy London. That's a network of around about 30 groups around the capital working to deliver community energy projects. But my main area of interest is in cities and energy, particularly London, because I can't be bothered going out of zone six. <laughs> and uh, what I principally look to do is look to see what government policies around energy and climate are and try to map them down into London. Because one of the things that many policymakers forget is that there's a very different regional basis to how the policies uh, interact in certain regions uh, across the country. Um, just two things that come to mind in terms of answering that question, both are recently. One, I presented at a local climate assembly. So I've been working in my North London borough called Barnet, and uh, to their credit, um, they've been doing absolutely terrific work recently uh, since the change of administration in May 2022. And they committed to a climate assembly and they've got that rolling and I was asked to present about energy in people's homes and present it four times over a period of about two hours. And uh, just to say that um, I did an absolutely blinding set of slides. It was fantastic. <laughs> I encapsulated some of the big things that have been happening in the UK on energy for about 30 years in about eight minutes. And really simply. And the answer I got back from, and I've never met so many disinterested people in my entire life. <laughs> so just one thing to mention is, is that they did a bloody great job there of doing a random sample of residents in my borough. And out of the 40 odd people I spoke to that afternoon, one and a half knew anything about what we're talking about. 
So, you know, we tend to occupy the criticisms we make of those echo chambers of people from the left and the right. I'm afraid we're very much within that ourselves. <laughs> and if you go to speak to normal people out there, throwing jargon like just tra transition, social capital, lots of the other thing, they'll just look at you. And just the override, the, the one comment I, came, I got back time and time again is, how do I get home with two bags of shopping in the rain? So that was their priority when they got kids and it's a commuter time. So just want to emphasize all of the decisions around local energy are really important, but if we put it through the prism of kind of energy, we're going about the wrong way of doing it. What a set of opening statements. I don't know where to begin. Um, I'm from Barnet, not anymore. I used to be there, so we'll have to, we'll have to talk after. Do the secret handshake after. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, Joanne, I might, I might turn to you because you mentioned a number of your hats. One of the ones that you left off has been your involvement and engagement in the Energy Rev project as well. So, you know, you've seen a lot of the, the sort of innovation that's been going on over the last four or five years around the energy smart places, you know, to your ADE work, the Energy Rev work, and, and the countless other sort of positions you mentioned. And sort of thinking about that energy smart places as delivering the best, making life better. I mean, are you starting to see some of that innovation address this, address it fairly, address it inclusively? You know, where are we making strides forwards and, and where do you think we need to be doing better or more? It's a good question. And I think my impression is that what we've done is create some really innovative and good local energy systems that meet the needs of some of the community in areas where, and I'm going to use jargon, sorry, where there is a lot of social capital and there's a lot of energy expertise. Mm. And that's great because that's where innovation starts. That's right. That's the right thing to do first. But once you've got that innovation in those areas, you need to then understand what it has done for the local community and what it's not done for the local community. And then also actually put quite a lot of resources into thinking about how you then get out of that niche into the wider world where you've got an awful lot of communities that don't have massive amounts of social capital and certainly are not stuffed with energy experts like Oxford is, you know, sorry, I don't want to pick on Oxford as an example, but it is, isn't it? It's full of energy experts. And that's fantastic because that is the innovation generator. Brilliant. The real challenge is how do you learn enough from those privileged communities that you can then spread it beyond the niche? And I'm not sure I know the answer, but I think that's the key question. Just to second that point, and sorry to again to pick on Oxford, I was born there, so you know, some, some loyalty. <laughs> but uh, Retrofit Works has one of our um, able to pay retrofit schemes running, the one that's the most successful actually, uh, in Oxford called Cozy Home Oxfordshire, um, working really well with the Low Carbon Hub, who are doing this great work with different community organised or community energy organisations in Oxfordshire and kind of generating the demand for a kind of whole house retrofit and renovation service. But we are still, sadly, I believe, only really getting at those middle class, green, older people with a bit more time. You know, they've got the house, the kids have left. Maybe I should make my home more energy efficient. And the real question, because this is so core to the problem of, of bills and, and, you know, the whole, the whole piece around comfort and health. How do we get at 
that other, you know, that broader group of people who are trying to just get home with their shopping in the rain, don't have the time to engage with this. You know, even a really great model like our, like the one that uh, we're pushing out in Oxfordshire is only tapping into that narrow group. So it's a really big, big problem. And it's, it's a really good point, especially as you know, as we go beyond retrofit and start to think about some of the other assets that we see in SLES, like electric vehicles, battery, PV, etc., etc., etc. I mean. Yeah. So uh, just uh, that, that reminded me about, uh, I'm doing some work at the moment for Westminster City Council, another council that changes the administration in May 2022, another set of very ambitious goals as part of the climate and energy agenda is undergoing at the moment. Uh, one thing I don't know, I know the bits of Westminster that we all probably do know, you know, central London, but uh, the north of the borough around North Paddington, there are some really high areas of deprivation around Westbourne Grove, uh, Honour Oak and so on. And so we had uh, one of our first sets of meetings there, high levels of diversity, lots of young people, low-income neighbourhoods. And so one of the first things I've asked is, what is the net zero transition for them like? And it's been really interesting trying to get officers to understand what I meant, because I'm not necessarily saying about how do you put in heat pumps or heat networks or storage, but what does it mean for the households when they have to decant themselves in for area-wide retrofit. So anyway, we're, we're making some moves, but just my point was is actually is there was some funding, there's significant government funding from a whole list of acronyms that nobody quite knows what they all stand for, but the officers were speaking to people, sending letters, and those households, low income, were not taking up the offer. Mm -hmm. So even though they were being offered free insulation and free retrofit measures, they weren't. They didn't understand what they were, didn't necessarily trust, there was a hassle factor associated with it, and it was just too different. And they leave busy lives. It's one other thing that you couldn't add to an already long set of priorities in their life. So again, when we're thinking about area-wide retrofit on a place basis as we're doing here, and we're stacking up the range of things that we're thinking of, actually, even people who are going beyond the middle class uh, kind of like, you know, model that we're thinking about as the kind of first take-up, even when we're offering it free, they're not taking it up. So we have to think differently about putting ourselves in their frame of mind to see how can we make sure that we deliver the services that we think that they need in the, most, in the way that they want. I think that's a really, really complicated issue to try and get to the bottom of because I think there's, there's two sides of the coin. There's the people are fed up of things happening to them and not being engaged from the appropriate uh, period of time when these projects are being developed it, there, there's the agency side of things yeah. you know we mm -hmm. want to be involved in helping to determine what our future looks like but I completely agree on the other side there is that this lack of understanding capacity messaging that really works for people finding out the, the, the key terminology framing that will actually as you say when people care about getting their, their shopping home in the rain how do you how do you make those changes? And we've seen a lot of the, the government funding has been focused on those um, in energy poverty and those um, who have the, the, the leakiest homes. But essentially, unless you get that intractable problem right, um, it's, it's going to continue to be uh, very complicated to achieve any transition at all. So is the problem fundamentally that we've tried for too long to do this on our terms? or on policymaker terms on, is that the, I was just gonna cut in and, I mean, there's a question is, is kind of, is it the message? But also is it the messenger? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, mm -hmm. 
who is this coming from? I mean, some, some research we've done with colleagues at the University of Leeds suggests that, like, most people, when they make decisions about renovating, their, doing anything to their home, whether it's finding a builder or, or whatever, will use their social network mm -hmm. to ask for advice, whether it's on Facebook or literally people over the back of the garden wall or their friends. And we've, you know, in, in energy policy, we've created this kind of artificial landscape where we intervene in people's lives in a very top-down way with very technocratic language. And, you know, we don't, we, we don't even really think about who actually ends up delivering that message and how it's bedding in in a place or in communities. So, you know, my view is kind of no wonder a lot of this hasn't landed. And, I mean, it'd be interesting yeah. to know your views, you know, because community energy is much better at this. But even community energy itself tends to be represented by a certain group of people. Quite right, yeah. You know, and it's how do you broaden that, yeah. that church, sorry to use that expression, so, you know. We in a church. <laughs> so really, you know, how do you broaden that 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 inclusion mm -hmm. of, of who's in the conversation? It's very difficult, and it it's very it's a very bottom scale issue. You know, you can't do it from high up, high above. I think. But don't you think it's because we start from talking about energy or home renovation or whatever, not what do you need your life to be like? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some really interesting work that goes on. People like C40 Cities who do thriving cities, and you actually start from the point of view of what do you want your city to look like in 2050? And it's nothing to do with the energy system or buildings, actually. It's to do with people's lives. And you get people to talk about that. And then us as the experts in delivering that stuff, translate that into what the energy system needs to be, rather than trying to engage people in the energy system, because it's just, just do the job. You know, they, they, want start, they want their lives. They don't want the energy system. Um, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that when... God, how many years ago was it? The industrial strategy started off with energy as a part of it, but ended up energy wasn't one of the pillars. It was underneath the whole lot. And that was right. It isn't one of the outcomes. And we tend to forget that it's not an outcome. It's a facilitator mm -hmm. of everything else. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we had the conversation that way with people, we'd get a lot further. Into, we'd then have to interpret it. But that's fine. That's our job. Their job is to tell us what they need. So is this, is this how we get people excited about it? Is this how we translate our excitement and our, our, our geekiness? <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> just to say, that, I, mean, we, uh, I mean, the government can't be blameless in here. Just to say, the offer from local authorities down to citizens is often dictated by the programmes that have been set by government. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, we've got five or six big funding programmes. The reporting requirements are all different for all of them. They don't seamlessly work together. You have to go to every house. It's dependent on the EPC, which might be wrong whether or not you qualify for the funding. So... I mean, really what needs to happen is, again, that issue of agency. The local authorities need agency with a clear pathway for, to set the vision and then in, engage meaningfully with their residents. They can't do that because they have to sit within a, a tight series of constraints around each funding programme. So they can't meaningfully engage. They can't really set out what the pathway will be for residents. So that's, you know, a real failure of government to understand about how to set that net zero agenda locally. And we've seen it time and time again. It doesn't feature in their thinking whatsoever. I mean, if you want to, the latest press release I saw from Grant Chaps, he's been very quiet. Does anybody, has anybody seen him? But <laughs> Mr Chaps has been, you know, uh, just not been anywhere. But he did issue an interesting press release. If you want to get money to work with the Saudi Arabian government to put solar panels in space and bring the power down by microwave, you can. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that was a January press release. <laughs> but if you actually want to do things about into a home or a community, I mean, I cannot emphasise this enough. There are no policies from government to help community energy at all. No. <laughs> Nothing. There's a complete absence of anything on community energy. But small modular nuclear or fusion or hydrogen, you know, anything upstream is still very much there. Anything downstream is just absent from thinking. Why so, do you think that is? Um, funny enough, there was uh, an event uh, in Manchester as part of, I think, uh, Innovate UK three or four day days ago. And he'll remain nameless, but he's a good guy now. But he um, works with one of the catapults. He was a spad at Bayes and he basically said... <laughs> I think we all know who yeah, you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> and he said, a kind of mere culpa, he's doing loads of local energy now, but he said, basically, when I was in Bayes, we were looking at terrible hours. And also, I worked in deck as was for a year and a half, and a kilowatt hour saved is not the same as a kilowatt hour generated mm. in policymakers' minds. They just don't believe it. So everything's on generation, and if it's generation, it's big-scale stuff. And that's what we see time and time again. We've got Sizewell, Hinkley, SMR. SMRs are not small, they're bloody big, <laughs> and so on and so forth. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if we're building new generation, new transmission lines, new distribution wires, and it gets to my house, I've still got really shoddy windows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my, electric, my heat pump generating with a COP of three and a half or whatever is going to be useless because it'll still be going out the window. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, do you... <laughs> I don't even know what COP means. Um, <laughs> Karen, do you think we're starting to see a shift at the local government level? Do you think that we're starting to see more engagement around that kind of the, the people, the demand, the vision for cities? And um, how do we need then to to kind of push that upwards. Yeah, I think so. And this comes back to the point I made earlier about understanding how the constituent parts fit together. So I completely agree with you, Jana, in terms of the need for a 50-year vision. Um, and it would be wonderful if that came from the, the, the bottom up. But essentially, when we work with at maximum five-year political cycles and we don't have that cross-party consensus, it's very difficult to do anything with that information. I think there are a raft of local authorities in the UK who are really, really committed and ambitious and have been for the past four or five years now. And I think that Westminster is a fantastic example of how quickly you can build that momentum and start to shift things in the right direction. But I think one of the challenges is capacity at local level <laughs> to be able to enact these things. We've talked about the short term, various different pots of money that are all trying to do different things and perhaps tinker around the edges more than kind of diving into to the problem um, or the problems. But I also think that you know, elected local leaders uh, are on a very significant spectrum as well in terms of engagement on the issue, but also knowledge of the issue and capacity to do anything about it. So I think where, yes, to answer your question, Becky, I think things are starting to move. I also think that there have been, trying to be optimistic about things, some recent developments like the announcement of the Energy Efficiency Task Force, like the outcome of the REMA consultation, which says that we will start talking to end users. You know, these are things that should have already been happening. But I do think that in this new energy security narrative that we have, we, we need to get some assurances that energy security doesn't mean re-upping on, on licences. It actually means engaging with people on the ground. Yeah, sort of just to follow on from what you're saying, I think, you know, having 
yeah, you see these lead these leading authorities. You know, they tend to be the bigger, uh, more well-resourced, you know, cities, unitary authorities, and then you, you know, go into some of the, the rural and less resourced places, and you know, they're struggling to take out the bins. They're not even taking out the bins. You know, and and I do think there is an issue there about how much expectation we are placing on local government in its current funding climate. I don't want to make too many political points in this talk but Go for it. you know <laughs> we've had 10 years of severe austerity in local government and we're, lo we're loading on new expectations on them that 50 years ago they didn't have and i do think that it's a conversation we need to need to have properly mm. uh, you know they are the natural actor for much of this particularly fuel poverty i think and energy, energy efficiency and I, I think the other point to make you know to kind of more link to the the, the theme of this event is you know i think we should stop thinking about energy issues in silos as well. Yeah. I think most people think about their home mm. yeah. and the energy use in their home, whether that's insulation or maybe the appropriate solution for them is a solar panel or a heat pump or even a, a thermostat or something that enables them to use energy. You know, they view that as one, one set of issues and it's how that impacts them in terms of the installation and, and, and the use of it. So, yeah, I think, you know, I just do think we need to, yeah, we need to think more about who, you know, who is going to deliver this are they properly resourced? Who's having those conversations? Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, and, and yeah, because I think there's too, too much top-down thinking in terms of how this is actually going to be delivered on the ground, basically. Yeah, and I think, I think that, that is a really interesting point and a, an important point about too much top-down thinking. Because if you look back to the, it was DEC at the time, it was about 2012, there was a local authority competition for delivering energy switching, fuel poverty schemes and Green Deal, I think it was at the time. And what was really interesting in that programme was it was actually quite flexible as to who delivered. So you've got certain local authorities going, we have not a bloody clue what we're doing here, but we've got a group in our local community who does. So we're going to apply, but they're going to do it. And they were very... The, the local authorities who were successful in that scheme were very open to going, well, these are our capabilities. And if we haven't got the right ones but we've got them in our community, we're going to use them. And we have a slight tendency to go, oh, we need to, uh, we need to resource every local authority yeah, to do everything. It's like, well, no, actually, let the local community work out where it's best to up the skills and capacity because you've already got something happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know. I think Cambridgeshire is a fantastic example of just that. So in that decade of austerity, predating the, the time of DEC, I think that... Energy, uh, sorry, the, the Cambridgeshire Local Authority acknowledged that they would actually save money if they retained their energy staff in-house and not you know, disperse of the teams where they needed to cut budgets. And you fast forward to now, they have one of the most sophisticated and forward-thinking and innovative and brilliant teams. So I'm giving a shout-out to Cambridgeshire as well as Oxford to balance things out. You know. um, but I think it's it, it, that acknowledgement that keeping retaining that key staff will enable things to happen we see it with energy capital now in west midlands and some of the fantastic local area energy planning that, that greater manchester are doing having that acknowledgement that if you if you build it it will come and swath and prior which is in cambridgeshire mm. is a fantastic example of a community saying we want this um who's in and you know, largely everybody in the village is now involved in a scheme that will take them away from off-grid energy to heat pumps and solar power. And as a collective village, that's very much been built up from the, the ground. But because the, that team 
has been in place in the local authority for such an, a long time. They're established and able to help with such ambition. Um, so that's a yeah a great example of of making things work. I think it it, it worth recognising as well, just on the, on the back of the points about austerity, which are entirely mm -hmm. legitimate, is that people have also been through. 10 or more years of austerity themselves as well, right? Especially in those more sort of disadvantaged communities that we're talking about, and then a pandemic, and then an energy crisis on top of everything as well. And we're at a stage now where we're also asking, or potentially about to ask people to do more in this space than they have before. I guess this speaks a bit to your point before as well. I come from the, the kind of community where understanding of these issues isn't the, the level that it's at in this room, that's also fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but how do you overcome that? And does local or community-led approaches provide a, a better opportunity to do it? Or is there something more, more fundamental we need to think about? So a couple of things there. Uh, one, it would be a lot better if uh, the channels of authority could help communities in a better way. So uh, community, community energy is arising in spite of everything. You know, mm -hmm. It's not being helped. It, it clearly sees that there's a desire for communities to shape the areas in which they live. And it often starts from looking at an, a, a beloved asset, a community centre, a GP <coughs> a place of worship, something that they see that they want to, they utilise on a regular basis and they want to help improve because it's an asset that they, they, they value. And that's often where some of the community energy groups have started from. One of my favourites is SE24 Energy around Camberwell. There were a bunch of cyclists associated with the church. They looked at the feed-in tariffs because the church roof was being um, was really poor. They wanted to see how it could be improved. And then uh, from the cyclists, they got to looking at feed-in tariffs. They then looked to do surveys. They built solar panels on the roof. Some of the income from the fit not only went to investors, but also went to a community fund, which helped for a peace garden, which was bringing together some kids in the area who were having some trouble. So they kind of got those kids together to kind of have a conversation about what was going on. So, you know, that's a great story. And there are many examples in London, I'm sure, elsewhere as well. Um, but it is a hard slog for them. Mm. And uh, part of what Community Energy London is doing is bringing more resources. But the thing that keeps me up at night is that we're, doing, we're being quite successful. We're launching a vision document for a six-fold increase in the number of projects by 2030. We're doing that on Thursday in the House of Commons. But the brilliant people we have, we have to replace them. And we have to get new people in. And uh, also the other thing is that, um, you know, they can be at a time in life and they're really interested in it, but in a couple of years' time they get busy with something else. We don't have the structures there, but we're building them with local authorities. Because one of the things about Westminster is Westminster's got a very good new climate change team, a climate change action plan. But the first thing they say, the missions that we look after that are responsible for our assets are 2% of the total borough's climate change emissions. We need to build these links with business, with communities, to, chance, uh, to get any chance of achieving net zero. So we, we haven't got the structures being built there. They are coming about. Uh, and there are lots of good news stories. That's one of the things that we, we really recognise and we need to shout out about them. I mean, one of the things that really drives me bonkers is the groups do a brilliant project, they move on to the next one without necessarily shouting out how brilliant the mm -hmm. one they've just delivered is. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I want to tap into mm -hmm. some of the, the things that you've raised. And I think... It, you know, it goes to show, and, and Fraser, you're often talking about this, how a lot of the time where we're seeing 
stuff coming from the grassroots, from the community, that often springs up in places that might not be the most well-resourced, but they're driven by people who are passionate about yeah. something, maybe not energy, in that case, you know, the, the church roof, um, but, you know, really passionate people. When we look at these kind of bigger innovation-funded projects where we do see substantial amounts of, of money being channeled into areas, it, it tends to be in those places that are, you know, better served by by experts, by resources and so on. And Joanne, you mentioned that that notion of, of starting there but translating out. So, um, you know, long-time friend of the pod, Jeff Hardy, raised the question around, you know... <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, why, why do we start there rather than necessarily some of the places that might um, benefit the most but that will probably end up going last? Do we need to be flipping that on its head? Or how do we do the translation better? Is it about starting energy projects in other places or is it starting about starting community capacity and whatever people care mm. about projects? Mm. You know, mm. I think that's the thing that we often get wrong. It's like, we think we've got an energy project and we need to move it to somewhere else where people are not interested at all. But, you know, Syed, like you said, mm. you know, it's the church roof or it's a garden or it's a, you know, Low carbon West Oxford mm -hmm. actually does a heck of a lot of stuff that's nothing about mm -hmm. energy. You know, the people who run it are very interested in putting solar panels on schools, but actually an awful lot of the community getting together is about swapping things or gardening or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And I think we or need... Just hanging out with each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we need to think about community and where communities already come together or how we can encourage communities to come together and then introduce energy into the conversation... Just the, just a small, just the sort of thing that frustrates me about so much of this now is, you know, we had a situation with the feed-in tariff back in, you know, the early 2010s. Solar was quite expensive then, right? And you needed a big chunky subsidy to make it work. Solar is dirt cheap now, dirt cheap. And we still can't crack a good business model to make that work, to roll that out across most of the country and save loads of people, you know, loads of money and, and, and create jobs for installed. Like, surely we are... Hair's breadth from doing that. What? Where is the policy? You know, where is the policy, the support, mm -hmm. the delivery to make that happen? Because it, it's not going to require a huge push, but it does clearly require. You know, I'm not giving an answer here, but it feels. Mm -hmm. You know, batteries, solar, smart charging. Like we, you know, right on the cusp of something. We need to make sure people benefit from that, not just people with ten grand to invest. Mm. It feels like we've spent a lot of time thinking about technology, te technical innovation. And I think what's missing is innovation across the board, how we do things differently, how we experiment with things, how we iterate. And that's probably because I'm a governance nerd and I like talking about processes and how things change. But I think essentially there is a real uh, reticence to not fail. Um, so yeah. Because that's double negative. Real reticence. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I think... In, in doing that, in, in taking available funding and in experimenting with things, if they don't go right, we forget about them. We don't, we don't learn from them and then iterate to the next thing. Um, and I, I think more investment, more time, more consideration of what that looks like, as, as Joanne said, I think all starting points will be different. All places will have different stories, different contexts. So in essence, it doesn't really matter what the driver is or um, how, we, how we grow those sorts of projects that you were talking about. So I, the fact is we just need to get on. Yeah, the tricky points are quite interesting. I mean, uh, one of the big projects in Hackney, when I met um, one of the ladies who lived on the estate, 
she got really involved in it because she thought her two kids could get a job in this wonderful new sector. And so on the project there, the community energy group did some solar panel training. What is a solar panel? Just with some kids to kind of understand it. Uh, the kids then put it down on their CV that they'd done this workshop. Now, they didn't get a job with the solar panel provider, but they got a job. And part of the reason was I think any employee could see that they had an interest in actually learning new skills. And that was something transferable to whatever they went on to do. So the trigger point was from their mum about trying to get their kids into a job. And what we do know about one of the things about local energy is the investment locally is going to be absolutely huge. And what we really need to do is make sure that that investment stays as much as it can in the community and that helps benefits the families who are going to be part of the solution to try and make us get achieve net zero. They are part and parcel of it, and they're far too often not involved in the conversation. And just to say, one of the things that says, you know, they do want involved in the conversation, but they don't want it hammered at them all the time. So another <laughs> challenge is it's that, you know, I mean, we're coming spending time talking about these things. They've got better things to do with their lives. And so what we need to do is <laughs> what we need to do is make sure we offer them when they need it, but then have a seamless kind of series of uh, and execute things properly. Yeah. And just remember one other thing is, as we've seen with every kind of technology, things will go wrong. And what we need is we need those intermediaries at the local level to help smooth over issues when things go wrong. And we've got, you know, 2.2 million heat pumps, uh, you know, to uh, be installed in London by 2030 to achieve anything like the net zero target. I mean, you know, there's going to be lots of bad heat pump installs and some very good ones as well. But when they're bad, we need to make sure we have the right solutions to help those families sort it out. I want to pick up, side on your, your point around, so, so for instance, that, that learning about solar panels, but we, we talked across the panel earlier as well about the, the wider having a social space to go to that also happens to be decarbonised because a community energy group mm. took it on. Mm -hmm. um, having a place to, to learn from each other, to interact, to deal with issues, you know, it might be around inclusion or whatever it might, whatever it might be. Is this something that we need to... This is a very loaded question... But is this something that we need to figure out how to value more in terms of energy regulation, energy policy? Because this, this kind of stuff, maybe we can't quantify it as easily, but it's, it can be enormously, enormously important in communities. Just give you a boring answer, please. <laughs> I mean, basically, the way that government makes decisions right now is a top-level cost-benefit analysis. What is included in that cost-benefit analysis does not factor in community cohesion, all of this soft stuff that we know works and matters. It's a very, it's a, you know, it's a high-level spreadsheet exercise. What's the policy going to do? What's it going to deliver um, along quite narrow parameters? And that is riven through every civil service department in mm -hmm. every decision-making thing that we do in this country. So until you change that, you're not going to get policy outcomes that deliver this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think the thinking in silos as well is, is a huge issue. So if you can't, it's very difficult to, to put a, a quantification on this, but there is a value to be had in considering you know, what the health benefits are, what the uh, community benefits at large are in terms of promoting social cohesion and things like that. And it's not happening at all at the moment. As you say, it's completely uh, a cost-based, cost-benefit analysis derivative. But I think that what's had more traction across the, the broad UK populace in the past few months is visions of black mould in rented properties. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably done more for energy efficiency awareness than 
very targeted and coordinated campaigns have done. And that's because it's a significant uh, health impact that, that needs more visceral, close attention. You can exactly. See it, you can, yeah. There's stories attached to it. But I do think there's a limit to what we can do within the energy space. You know, it's about what we value overall. You know, so so we've we've learned that actually we need to value energy efficiency because it's people's health. But if you look at local energy schemes in Africa and foreign office funding or whatever it's called, funding for that sort of stuff, things like community development, economic development, all sorts of stuff like that are factored in to what's important because it's mm -hmm. considered important in countries in Africa. What? Why is it not considered important <laughs> in communities in the UK? Yeah, maybe we need to learn. Yeah, I think a decade ago we had some very, very, very clearly thought through sustainable development indicators that we had to track progress against mm. and report against. And I think they've, they've diminished somewhat over, over the past few years. But I think really determining what progress looks like, how well we're doing, and not just at the national level, but you know, regionally and locally would really help. Um, and it comes back to the, the idea of you know, mapping out a vision of where we want to be. Uh, yeah. We need to know how well we're doing getting there. Yeah. One of the key things I've been trying to do with Community Energy London is when we're engaging with people is, uh, I know this sounds absolutely shocking, but if you want them to be engaged properly, pay them. Can we get pay, a round of applause know, for that yeah. as well? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We want, you know, kind of, we kind of think that they'll all come along because they can see nice, you know, adaptation, you know, green walls. But no, if you want them to be really involved in shaping the journey to net zero locally, yes, they will get benefits out of it, but they still deserve to be paid as part of the process. Mm -hmm. The consultants coming in <laughs> are being paid, yeah. okay, on that night, on that evening, and so pay the communities have budgets to make sure they can engage properly. And then you'll get the best of both worlds. You'll get a better outcome in terms of their input and a longer engagement because they'll have been better educated throughout that whole process. So when you're doing these projects with communities, add a line in about paying those people in the evening because it's hard work. And we're really asking them to think really deep things for net zero and we expect them to do them free. And it doesn't work out that way. And I feel the same about the community sector as well. Mm. You know, we rely and we've, we've talked about the importance of community groups, but ultimately they're very reliant on volunteerism. Yeah, I mean, literally, we were mapping out some work. I mean, some of the consultations, so I'm afraid my colleague Afshin Rashid, uh, Chief Exec of Repowering London, they've done three solar... Um, uh, projects on tower blocks in Brixton, uh, in Lambeth, and they've had to go in. And the amount of volunteers uh, before I, I joined as their chair, but uh, the amount of consultation there to do with communities knocking on doors. Now, we all like working in the energy sector. We all like talking about energy. How many of you want to go out on a winter night and knock on doors and talk about insulation on an estate in South London? And not for one day, but day in, day out, and keep that conversation going because you're not going to be leaving that community behind. You want to be part of that net zero journey. So it's the less glam bit of all the work that, you know, <laughs> in terms of why we're having problems with it, because it's hard work. So I want to pick up on something that we've, I mean, I feel like the notion of learning mm -hmm. and translating um, insights has been really powerful. 
When I've talked with people that are deeply involved in community projects, often the big things that they talk about in terms of their barriers have absolutely nothing to do with energy and all about the legal structures of setting up a cooperative or, you know, things that you wouldn't think about. And without the funding, it's hard to get support and so on. I mean, so, you know, when we think about this notion of, of learning and so on, do we need to see more joined up action? Is there an opportunity? Are we missing a, a beat here? Or is there something inherently important through going through the cycle from the beginning? Just one very quick point about that to say, uh, I hate all of that. It's so hard. So the best answer to that is one, get somebody who knows what they're doing. And two, it's quite amazing, actually. We've talked about some of the, it's been a slightly bleak kind of discussion about some of the challenges. But actually, lots of people in community sector, they actually enjoy doing these things. Some of them have been doing it for 20, 30 years in their day job, and they're actively like, you know, we were talking about entrepreneurs, I think, earlier on downstairs, and lots of people are involved in kind of entrepreneurs. I mean, they want to get involved in community energy groups as well because they want to see and create these organisations. So you do need a good team. We're really lucky in community energy and in London. We've got some really fantastic, skilled people. But saying that, you know, they're spread quite thin. But, yeah, get that team together. They'll want to do it locally. They'll want to engage. And there's, there's lots of positive stuff going on. But don't make it as hard as it is now. I, I actually think if we got some of the funding from government, you'll be able to unlock so many conversations really quickly. Sorry, Donald. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Just, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think... I'm keeping Mr. Doom and Gloom, I'll try and <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you look at how government energy efficiency policy right now is delivered. It's delivered in these cycles, right? So you get a funding cycle, the money comes through. For example, the GLA Warmer Home Scheme. There's a pot of money, we've got to spend it. Rush, 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 rush. Employ people, employ people, set up little businesses, and then nothing for three or four months. How on earth do you expect people to build businesses, build a supply chain, build trust, build continuity with a community that you're engaging with if you do this with the money mm. and the resource and people have to leave and get a different job and it's not the same person knocking mm. on your door next time because they've had to go and do something else. It's like, it feels really basic. You look at how, particularly Bailey's not, you know, but the, how they've run these schemes recently is just, what, what, what are you trying to achieve? Are you just trying to screw some insulation to walls or whatever it is you're installing? Or are you trying to build a market? Are you trying to build an industry? And I don't think they've <coughs> understood that it's the latter that we need. Because eventually we want to stop having so much subsidy and grant funded stuff. Mm. We want things to happen of their own accord. Yeah. But until you start thinking in that way, you're never going to, you know, you're never going to do that. And it's not just Very the supply chains; it's the customers as well. Yeah. Because you know, you, there's, there's an offer there, whether it's a grant if you're on a low income, or whether it's some kind of other incentive if you're not. And it's there, and then it's gone, and you apply, and you go through hideous amounts of paperwork, and then actually, you no, know, there's no money left, and that kind of thing. I was looking at a, a scheme recently for some work I was doing um, in the US, which was solar panels. Was it in the US? It was in, in America, the Americas somewhere. Solar panels on people's roofs. And it was an annual scheme and there was an annual budget. But if you applied and the money had run out, you were first in the queue for yeah. next year. Mm. And we never do that kind of thing. It's like there's a pot and you go through the entire process. Then it disappears. And from a consumer's perspective, that's horrendous. It puts everybody off. Whereas, why, if you've shown an interest, are you not just in the queue when next time money's there, you just, you're next, you know? I was at a conference, I think actually possibly in here, a few years ago, and the government announced another scheme in December, December the 12th or something like that, uh, with money coming forward and the money had to be allocated and spent by March the 31st, so next year. (laughs) We've seen it time and time again. Uh, You might remember there was a £500 million energy efficiency fund that was launched on December the 6th by Bayes, 
and everything had to be installed by March the 31st, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, only That only happened <laughs> two, three months ago. So anyway, uh, one of the local authority people went up to a very senior Bay civil servant and said, you always do this to us. You always, we have to come in as the cavalry and at, late in the day, because you've got budget underspend, you announce in December with a deadline for March. And the chap looked at the local authority person in a very Sir Humphrey way and he said, well, you know, uh, if we always do it, you should be expecting it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you, know, you have, so there you are. It's our fault of not, not forward thinking what it is they're going to spend their underspend on at the last yeah. moment. <laughs> I think it's the short-term time frames for getting those things around, which, granted, are uh, ridiculous. But there's also the competitive element to it. It's like not mm. all local authorities or community groups are the same. Half of them probably don't have capacity or ex- experience of, of putting in these grants. They're not going to get the money. Therefore, you just keep perpetuating the uneven playing field that exists. And it comes back to the point you made earlier about rural communities versus you know, urban areas a lot, a lot of the time, the context is set from an urban perspective. Therefore, it makes it very difficult to understand what the rural proposition looks like. Um, but to come back to your, your question, I think that institutional learning, institutional capacity are really, really important and significantly lacking. So as you said, Said, people work tirelessly on projects for two years, they move on to something else. Pots of money are three, four years long that project ends and that institutional learning isn't carried forward in any way. And I think that that's a real gap that needs addressing. I feel like we could keep talking for hours, but uh, (laughs) you'll all get a bit bored if we keep going all night. (laughs) (laughs) Probably need to get home on the trains. I'd actually like to ask another question, I think, just before we wrap up, because we'd be remiss not to talk about it. And it's something that when we we spoke, it's slightly indirect, but when we spoke about um, big innovation projects, how they're financed, where the revenues go, where where revenues captured or value is captured, do we see an increased role for thinking more about not just engagement, not just participation, but ownership, governance at the local level, community level? Mm. Is this something we need to see more of? I'd like to throw that out to to the Mm. full panel. Yes. Yes, but I think, you know, community energy has been this great thing and it has many facets, but, you know, one of the main ones, particularly in the feed-in tariff boom, was I've got some spare cash, I'm going to invest it in something. That is a small part of the population who can do that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that pluralising ownership, socialising ownership, if you want to use that word, is a really important part of this. We all need to have a stake in this change and ideally own some, some of the infrastructure. Um, but how can we design governance and, and models that allow somebody with 20 quid in their bank account to be part of that? Mm-hmm. And I think some of these models, the smart local energy models, do, you know, do hint at that. You, know, you, you don't have to own solar panels to get the cheap tariff, but we need to be thinking much more in those terms rather than just investor investment, you know, because that is only ever going to be a small group of people. So I think that's, yeah. Definitely. I think as well as having new finance models, blended models of finance, we need different models of ownership. We need to try new things because we need to throw everything we've got at this this issue. And I think that something we haven't talked about tonight because we're focusing on, on the community is that not all local projects will necessarily be small scale. And I think that those bigger 
projects will also have an impact. And what I'd really love, my, my kind of pet wish for, for taking this forward is that what nationally significant looks like in terms of infrastructure project isn't determined by the, the, the output, the scale, the size, but actually if you, can, if you combine all of these local projects together, when we have a more flexible energy system, that nationally significant is actually the impact that it will have in, in moving us towards a, a cleaner and transformed energy system, as opposed to, how long it takes to come online and what the output will be when it gets there. Um, but I can dream. <laughs> On the ownership um, question, I know lots of my community groups are really doing it for that reason. The bit that I'm really motivated by is the, the, the journey doesn't stop there. It's actually something we've not mentioned so far before, and neither has the government, which is behaviour change. It's broader behaviour change. Having mm. that asset nearby, know you've invested in it, Knowing it's there, it's in your, again, your church, yeah. your GP and everything, will hopefully support individuals and communities for wider behaviour change. Because net zero needs you, as CCC have highlighted, it needs a fundamental change in lots of uh, aspects of our life. And when you have a nuclear power station or a coal power station or anything very at the end of a transmission line, transmission line, that doesn't have that much impact on you as when you go and pick up your kids from school and you see an indicator on the wall saying it's generated a couple of hundred yeah. kilowatts of power that day. Mm -hmm. So that's the bit that you take that back home again, you think, actually, do I need a car? Can I take public transport? Should we not be having me on Mondays? And so on and so forth. So the bit about the ownership is absolute yes, I can see a real reason for that, but it's the trigger for behaviour change, which I think is really fundamentally important. So, uh, any more questions, Fraser? <laughs> <laughs> so before we close, I think I'd like to just, you know, come to each of you to wrap up. And we've talked a lot about, well, a lot about a lot of different things, but one of the sort of common themes has been the policy and regulatory side of it. So if you had one ask for our government, what would that be? And we'll go, we'll go the opposite direction, I think, this time. So Saeed, we'll start with you. Uh, there's no one magic bullet. I, th I think, though... On the basis of the work that I've been doing in the last couple of years, in 2012, we did have a community energy strategy. We did have a community energy team. We had a set of funds for feasibility and capital for community energy. We have none of that now. So the last PQ I saw was three weeks ago. You can get some money from the redress scheme. That's about it, really, for community groups. So we need to bring that back in thinking. We need to have a community energy strategy we need to have a series of tools and policies around that, and we need a much more active discussion. Nerdy community energy groups can do that, but the things that they do will filter out the wider community. That's what we want to try and achieve. Brilliant. Joanne, you're clear. Your one ask. Patience and longevity. The source of stuff we're trying to do takes time. It takes time to develop, it takes time to bed in, it takes time to prove itself. And, you know, the number of times tonight we said, oh, things stop and then they go, and we don't have time and it's too fast. I want to see policy that has a long-term outlook and long-term support for something so that it can grow organically and then be successful. What they said. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we, I think, and this really touches on your point about, you know, our obsession with energy, the energy system. I think we need to think what the energy system is for. It's about serving people yeah. in a way that doesn't destroy the environment. And I think we too often get caught in technocratic discussions about certain parts of it and, and how we tweak those, whereas really we need to look at the situation we're in. Record fuel poverty, record profits for oil and gas majors, mm -hmm. yeah. very little progress in certain parts of the transition. We're doing great in power, 
the big scale. We're doing almost nothing at the domestic scale in terms of heating. You know, so like, what is it we're trying to achieve? Let's design a policy and governance system that gets us there rather than this tinkering, this short-termism, because it's not working. Love that. The energy <laughs> system is for people. Let's think about them because all too frequently I see, how can people help the energy system? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Karen. Uh, so we have a new sparkly Department of Energy Security in Net Zero, and I would really like it to do a good job. Uh, so we've got uh, the Net Zero review. We know that we have a, a Net Zero strategy with more detail coming imminently. Um, and I would really like to see Desnes, whatever we're going to call it, take the helm, break down some of those silos and understand what we need to get to by 2050 and work backwards from there. Fantastic. Well, please join me in thanking our fabulous panel of guests tonight. You have been listening to Local Zero. If you enjoyed this episode, I mean, let's be honest, how could you not, Fraser, right? Um, please do subscribe to the pod. Just search for Local Zero wherever you get your pods. You could also leave us a review if you want to, you know, mention how um, good looking the Scottish guy's green suit was. That's entirely fine. Um, but it really does help us with the, the ratings and get out to more people and stuff as well. So if you're interested, leave a review and uh, we take it all on board. But for now, thank you everyone and goodbye. Produced by the Spoken Media.